Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Portland's own John Raymond. Raymond is the author of the novel Half-Life and the short story collection Livability, which won the Oregon Book Award, and contained two stories that became the movies Old Joy and Wendy and Lucy. John Raymond was also the screenwriter for the HBO miniseries Mildred Pierce, starring Kate Winslet, and is here today to talk about his new novel, Rain Dragon. Welcome to Between the Covers, John Raymond. Thanks so much for having me. So the book opens with a couple, Damon and Amy, who are from L.A., and they kind of are looking for a reboot on their lives, and they're driving north to the northwest, and they they come upon a, a farm called Rain Dragon that they decide to sort of throw in their lot with. And can you tell us a little bit about what Rain Dragon is all about and why that's appealing to our protagonist? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that the... Uh the, the kind of goal that they're following is one that a lot of people share to somehow uh, start a new life, to somehow be, you know, born again, as it were. Um, and I think this particular um, uh, farming fantasy is also a really pervasive and widespread one. It has become even more so over the years that I was writing the book. Um, for me, the idea of Rain Dragon, this particular farm, um, it kind of came from a few different places. Part of it was uh, inspired by Nancy's yogurt, I think, um, and just the sort of idea of this very homegrown uh, yogurt dairy farm. Um, I always have loved Nancy's yogurt, and I kind of love the Ken Kesey connection to uh, Nancy's also. Uh, and then, but as I as the writing went along farther, it became a kind of more diverse and strange kind of place. And in the end, I almost ended up thinking of it as a um, like almost an Enron of artisanal um, organizations. Like there's a little bit of everything going on here and everyone at this particular place is kind of competing with themselves to see what will uh, be the breakout kind of uh, product in some kind of way. So it was, um, you know, it, it, it became for me like a microcosm of, I mean, of an, in a sense of a Portland economy, of like a, 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 an economy based on very small scale uh, productions, um, but with uh, but with an eye towards uh, you know sustainable profit making in some kind of way, and and just the the trying to get at some of the dramas inherent in bringing a bringing a product into the public <coughs> sphere. It's interesting that you mentioned Enron because I, I found that Rain Dragon had this uh, strange hybrid between a corporate model with. The onus being on you to, as an individual, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and prove your worth and that verticality of like, of um, growing the business. But then also this sort of utopian, non-hierarchical, horizontal, um, interdependence philosophy sort of glommed on to this totally. corporate model. Exactly. And I mean, to me, that kind of has become the corporate model that we live in today. I mean, I think you can't really understand... West Coast capitalism, without um, yeah that sense of of yeah horizontal um, uh, <clears throat> happenstance and grooviness and everything. I mean, I think uh, you know to think about Silicon Valley and the ways in which people are motivated to uh, thrive in that world, uh, or thinking about you know even locally like a Wyden and Kennedy ad agency or something where there is this. It's at once this great uh, emphasis on the individual and on the individual um, tapping their greatest potential, um, but then al always also with the eye to um, market forces in some kind of way. I mean, 
yeah, there's a, I mean, I was definitely thinking a lot about, you know, yeah, people like Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison or, um, for myself, there's uh, another of the kind of corporate guru guys named uh, D. Hawk who founded the Visa card and lives in Olympia. And to hear him talk, he's like the most psychedelic sounding like freak you could imagine. And yet what he's what he's directing his his freakiness towards is arch capitalist endeavor. And I mean, to me, that's just that is what where we live now. That's that's kind of what happens. Well, very early in the book. The protagonist's girlfriend, Amy, she seems to find uh, a home at Rain Dragon. She's in a traditional sense, like she she gets involved in beekeeping. She immediately steps in and feels in sync with the uh, with the community. Whereas our protagonist, Damon, really struggles in any of the traditional farming uh, skills and really falls back on his uh, PR. Uh, skills back in LA, which end up being a real asset and become sort of a focus of the book in a sense, because the the head of the the farm wants him to uh, find ways to to share the wisdom of Rain Dragon with corporations that may not have any of that psychedelic aspect, including like lumber companies or yes. paper processing. And yeah. I was I was curious, like, do these? So they're working on developing sort of group awareness seminars for corporations and i was curious do these corporation seminars exist and oh my god they exist so massively i mean part of yeah oh yeah i mean for my part of the inspiration my dad is a a, a organizational management consultant um he has been for or was for a very long time and one of the one of the uh inspirations for this book was an episode that uh I witnessed him experience back in the 80s of uh, retraining a large California um, uh, energy company using incredibly esoteric, uh, um, practically mystical kinds of ideas about how organizations should work and how humans should interrelate with each other. And it was interesting because it was a huge debacle. I mean, the the workforce really revolted in that case. but it was a very large-scale instance of this kind of consciousness raising entering the corporate sphere, um, and uh, and in other instances, I think it's a much more successful kind of graft that goes on there. Um, I think uh, I mean yeah, just the the industry of life coaching and of 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 uh, seminar production. I mean, in a sense, it is one of our regions great crops you know i mean there's so many people with slightly varying ideas about or varying sort of technologies of bringing people into open contact with each other um that it's i mean it is it's kind of one of our main grassroots industries i would argue maybe in case you just tuned in you're listening to between the covers and today's guest is portland author john raymond talking about his book rain dragon i know we're talking a lot about corporations and and everything. And even though they're all the idea of the farm and the structure of the farm and how Damon tries to translate that wisdom into sort of a corporate program, that's all foregrounded in Rain Dragon. But it feels like even though that's really what's happening on the surface, what's brewing Mm -hmm. under the surface is what's going on with his relationship with his girlfriend, which seems to me is the real heart of the book and the engine of the book even though all this other stuff is happening. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of um, conceptual ideas that brought me to some of this material, but it turned out that a lot of it was kind of boring in a fictive environment. I mean, there's only so much talking about uh, consciousness raising you can do before it 
starts to wear out. And um, and so, yeah, there is another engine to the book that is uh, a romantic engine, a somewhat classic uh, boy-girl story, I guess. Um, but in that, I was interested in um, kind of cutting into their relationship at uh, a few steps in, um, concentrating less on the big pyrotechnics of um, meeting each other and falling in love and concentrating more on um, a few steps down the road where it's kind of more commitment time and it's like uh, people are wondering whether they are able to envision a future together. And I guess for me, that's where some of these things intersect in some ways. It's all about both in the consciousness raising, in a, in a group consciousness raising situation and in a private uh, relationship, I think in a sense, the question you're faced with is like, what is our destiny together? Can we envision a future together in some kind of way? And so I wanted to kind of cross those currents and do one in a professional sense and one in a romantic sense. And I think the romantic one is obviously where the emotional heat is. And um, and yeah, that, yeah. And, and- going to Rain Dragon almost feels like a litmus test for them in the sense of are they going to make it in the future, in the next step of their relationship? Yeah, and like are their new lives going to involve each other, you know, like their old life did, but does their new, are their new dreams going to sink in some way? I mean, I think that's something you have to deal with in relationships all the time, and they take a certain leap of faith, you know? I mean, I think a lot of... uh, a lot of our popular culture is about this sense of meeting the one person and just knowing exactly like I know that our lives are forever now going to be together and we're going to live happily ever after. Um, but I wanted to do something different where it was much more confusing than that. Like, you know, we could keep stepping backwards into this thing and seeing if it continues to work. And to me, that like uh, reflects more how people I know um, develop a relationship. Well, let's hear a little bit from from the book, uh, a little bit of the prose. I think you're going to choose something from the beginning. Yeah, I think I'll just read like the first few pages. Um, that takes the least uh, explanation. Great. So here we go. The owl wasn't that big, the size of a cat maybe. Its face was round and flat and covered in downy plumage with a little peanut-sized beak, and its body was like a puffy football spattered cutely with white spots. There was no menacing horned brow on the forehead, no snake coiling in its deadly talons. In fact, the only really spooky, owlish thing about the creature that had appeared in front of our car at the end of the cul-de-sac in the pre-dawn gloom, as far as I could tell, were its incredible round eyes. The eyes were eerie. Perfect glassy circles of blackness ringed in bands of yellow, tufted on top with delicate, angry gray eyebrows. They stared unblinkingly at Amy and me, taking in everything about us in one long, cold glare, seeming to comprehend every thought and action we'd ever had, every thought and action yet to come, and tabulating all of it against dry, first-hand knowledge of the black hole where all time leads in the end. There were tiny flecks of color in the irises lit by the sunbursts of the car's stopped headlights, framed in the windshield, perched on the crossbar of a rain-slickened jungle gym. The bird seemed like some kind of apparition from another world. Amy sat beside me in the passenger seat, wrapped in her pilling wool blankets, her lap speckled with split pistachio shells. For the last hour, she'd been complaining steadily about a litany of minor grievances. Her lack of decent coffee this morning, my poor navigational decisions, the musty funk that had settled into the car over the last two days of driving. But suddenly, now that we'd stumbled onto the owl, her mood had turned. I could read it in the the new tension in her posture, the subtle smirk that had settled on her lips, but most of all, I could tell by the way she'd been trying to convince me for the last, uh, 
convinced me that we'd been delivered some kind of terrible sign. It's a sign, she said, for at least the fourth time, and for the fourth time I denied it. That was my role in the moment, the voice of jaundiced optimism. It's here for a reason, Damon, she said, or we're here for a reason. This isn't just an accident. We invaded its territory, I said. It's probably here every morning. This is its regular place. The rain hammered steadily on the roof, streaming over the glass on every side of us. Our first day in our new life, she said, and we get lost and see an owl. How can you say this isn't a sign? I shrugged, the idling grumble of the engine vibrating in my bones. What could I say? I'd already, I'd already told her I didn't believe in signs, that I doubted that God or the goddess or whatever you called the organizing consciousness under the teeming colors of the visible plane played these kind of games of hide-and-seek with its creation. And furthermore, even if the universe did decide to send out missive messages from time to time, coy little missives, I didn't see the point of trying to decode them. Why tempt fate was my thinking. Anecdotal evidence suggested it was much better to avert one's eyes when owls or black cats or white elephants crossed one's path. But then again, I was the kind of person who'd probably walk past a sword and a stone without bothering to test my luck. Amy was the kind who'd push right to the head of the line. She hus husked a pistachio and dropped the shell in the brown bag at her feet. In Greece, the owl is a symbol of untimely death, she said. Why would you say that right now? I thought you weren't superstitious. Why do you care? A pillar of flame, a dead Indian on the road, those are signs. An owl on a jungle gym, though. I don't know what that is. <clears throat> We're in good shape, all right? Don't worry about it. Look at that thing, Damon. It's staring straight at us. A burning bush, a triple rainbow. When was the last time you saw an owl? Have you ever seen an owl? It's only a bad sign if you think it's a bad sign. Oh, so I'm the bad sign. The dashboard vents hummed and rain thrummed on the Camry's roof. Our headlights beamed over the bird, only to be swallowed in the pitch darkness beyond. For a second, as the owl's flat face cocked in a new direction, it almost did seem like it was on the verge of telling us something, like it might open its beak and utter some cryptic prophecy, some gnomic riddle. But of course nothing happened. It just stood there, gripping and re-gripping the crossbar, until finally, awkwardly yet elegantly, it unfolded its wings. From the small body unfurled almost six feet of dappled brown feathers, the gorgeous royal robe ruffled and shook, spraying sparks of rain, and with a slight hop, the owl lifted off into the early morning gloom. And we were alone again, sitting at the edge of an elementary school somewhere east of Portland, in the town of Clackamas, or possibly Gresham, thoroughly lost. I think you sometimes hear the saying that um, you can find the seeds of everything in the book in the beginning. And I think <laughs> that's really true with Rain Dragon. And, and what comes to mind when I hear you read it is... Uh, there's a lot of magical thinking in this book, which obviously they're they're seeing the sign of of the owl as an omen or a, a positive sign. Who knows? But also the owl itself seems like a perfect encapsulation. It's a symbol of Oregon or of the Northwest, yeah. but also putting what, a bird on it. You know, that's yeah. right, putting a bird on it. But also <laughs> that what we were talking about that intersection between the corporate yeah. and uh, the non corporate in the sense that it's the enemy of the timber industry and it's also the the emblem of environmentalism in, in our world so that they the first thing they would see driving yeah. to Oregon is yeah. sort of... That's funny. I had never actually thought about that precisely, but it's true. It does kind of... Uh, it does link to that in some ways, the eventual work they're going to do. Yeah. 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 That's funny. And then they're looking to nature also, which it looks like... Yeah. Which I think is a theme in a lot of your work, the, uh, the looking to nature of these characters to see about 
changing something for themselves inside. Yeah, and, and also uh, projecting one's own kind of emotions onto nature in that kind of way. I mean, I think that's um, part of what's happening uh, in this spot here. I mean, they're projecting their fears and their concerns and their optimism onto the onto the land in that kind of way. And I think uh, the land uh, in literature and in other ways has always functioned as that kind of uh, uh, tablet for people's projections. Um, yeah. So most of your work takes place in the Northwest. Do you, is that just a, a happenstance thing because it's the material you have that's in front of your eyes every day? Or is there, are there specific themes that the Northwest brings to the forefront that you're particularly interested in working on in your literature? Um, I'd say both in some ways. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, in some ways the Northwest is just the hand I got dealt. I mean, I was, uh, uh, my own family moved here when I was young. Um, I grew up here. I went to high school here. Just so much of my experience is here that it seems it's the place that I know the most intimately. And I think for the kind of writing I want to do, um, it, yeah, pr it, it just provides more images and more stories. I mean, I've been able to watch certain people's stories unfold here for decades. And you never know when something's going to happen that's going to kind of uh, click it into a, a, um, an inspirational kind of form. Um, that said, I mean, um, there was for me, I think, an almost arbitrary choice at a certain point to really invest my own imagination, I guess, in this in this particular place. And I think it did. I mean, there was a to me, there is a certain politics to it, and it does actually bear some relationship to the politics of small scale farming. You know, I mean, I think there is a sense that you. Um, um, I don't know that you that you deal with your local backyard in that kind of way, and you try to do things in your own community that um, uh, make it better, and that you you know you figure out what you like, and then you try and make more of it in your in your small sort of sphere. And um, I mean, to me, there is yeah, to me that has political ramifications in the way that um, in the way that uh, so much of the uh, I guess, DIY culture of our region implies. In case you just tuned in, we're talking with John Raymond about his book, Rain Dragon, and you're listening to Between the Covers. I mean, I obviously think of, with this book, and with a lot of your other writing as well, the idea of the pioneering spirit and the edge of the new world and the end of the Oregon Trail and these people, you know, a place where you can project your dreams and, mm -hmm. and such. And I would say even in this book, Rain Dragon, which deals so much with projects, Damon, our main protagonist, also seems to fall into the idea of viewing his uh, staying with Amy or how to be with Amy as a project. It feels yeah. like the language of it becomes like a strategizing language. <clears throat> totally, totally. And I mean, I think that like, I mean, we have generations now of um, very uh, developed uh, vocabularies about human consciousness in this region. And I think it does... Uh, infiltrates so much of our thinking, I mean, about about corporate commerce, but also just about our personal lives and the way that we, um, the way that, that people now are equipped to talk about themselves and their relationships uh, in this very, uh, I mean, nearly practical, um, mechanical kind of way. Um, I mean, through, you know, things like Est or uh, LifeSpring or, uh, you know, um, any number of sensitivity trainings that almost everyone has done uh, through yoga, even through um, uh, 
you know, work trainings that people do. I think that that is, I think that that is how people talk about themselves, you know? Yeah. Uh, that it really resonated in, in this book and you could see that he wasn't really separating out the way he was viewing bringing Rain Dragon to the next level and bringing his relationship to the <laughs> yeah, next level. Yeah, exactly. The next level, exactly. Yeah. The next big thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I'll be curious to see, you know, if and how people in other regions of the country, like, comprehend it. I mean, to me, this all seems so... It is exactly just what you see at your front door all the time. It is, to me, so much part of our environment. I have no idea if it would make sense to someone in Memphis or someone in, right. uh, you know, Boston. I mean, I think that... Uh, these kinds of discourses are maybe um, much more exotic in those places. You've, you've mentioned in other interviews that you consider yourself a regionalist. And when I think of other writers from the Northwest, say the most obvious example, Raymond Carver, I don't think of him as a regionalist. I don't feel mm -hmm. the, the place in the same way that I certainly do with your writing. So I was curious, are there Northwest writers that you look to as examples for regionalism, or are you looking to other regions, say like Faulkner, as as a prototype for what you do? I think more more the latter. I mean, there are certainly like uh, uh, Northwest writers who I love. I mean, you know, uh, Ken Kesey or H. Uh, L. Davis before him, or um, I mean, I do I, I do think of Carver as regional in a sense. I mean, you know, there are times driving out. Highway 30 or something to Astoria, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is Carver Country, <laughs> all right, you know. Um, but um, but I think, I mean, for me, the the kind of my own vague theories of regionalism um, don't grow so much out of specifically Northwest regionalists. I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, Faulkner is a is a great example of of um, someone who wrote about their place in ways that were incredibly universal and, and, and bizarre. Um, for me, a huge person is Sherwood Anderson, uh, who slightly predates Faulkner, um, and who wrote about the Midwest in ways that were just very resonant to me. Um, and very, uh, yeah, just very attentive, but also uh, he was very attentive to his particular place, but also very much in, in conversation with other places, um, and was not, um, he was regionalist without being provincial, and I think that that um, that was a kind of a movement, a regionalist modern, a mod or a modernist regional movement, or a regionalist modern movement uh, in the first half of the last century that um, that uh, could describe a lot of different uh, people. I mean, you could talk about Carson McCullers, you could talk about Flannery O'Connor, you could talk about Steinbeck, you could talk about so many people. Um, that that are identified with a particular place in some ways is just how literature works. I mean, you kind of you kind of associate a person with the little geography that they stake out. Um, in a sense, there's not really a choice to it at all. It just kind of happens. Well, you mentioned Sherwood Anderson and his interlinking stories, and your stories aren't explicitly interlinking, but I get the sense that with your novels and your short stories, almost like you have a view of a larger thing happening as you're doing the smaller parts of it. Like I like there's a John Raymond ecosystem. I know every writer has an ecosystem, yeah. but your ecosystem feels like it's geographic in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly with livability, I wanted to create a batch of stories that felt like kind of neighbors to each other, that like characters in a particular story could cross paths into other stories. I mean, in, in Winesburg, Ohio, Ohio, that literally does happen, and you see people kind of making appearances in other stories. But um, and I, that it doesn't happen explicitly in, in livability, but I feel like 
I wanted there to be that that sense of of of, of people crossing each other's paths off stage in some kind of way. Um, I mean, I think it's you know, I think a lot of people who go through workshop processes with their writing uh, start to conceive stories in particular as very discrete items, and that every story is kind of its own little um, nugget or jewel. But I find it more interesting to really think of them in ways that add to each other or to conceptualize them in kind of a broader way. It just helps me figure out like what to write next and like, you know, who's, yeah, who's going to be the next interesting person. Like, I don't want to have to start, I don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time. You have this uh, quote from your short story collection, Livability, uh, from the story Old Joy. What is sorrow but old worn out joy? And I, I think that I know I'll, I'm sure a lot of people have brought this quote up to you because it's so beautiful. But it also feels like an encapsulation of Rain Dragon, and mm. the idea of of this couple starting out mm. with this wide eyed, open vista, all hope, mm-hmm, and then as mm-hmm. the joy keeps going, it becomes sorrow. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it really right, is, yeah, uh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny in the writing of this the. I mean, this this book took a while for whatever reason to write, and in the writing of it, we kind of switched from the Bush era to the Obama era, um, and it was an interesting thing to suddenly be entering this era of hope and change, you know. Um, and like, I'm a innately cynical person, so it was, you know, it's like, okay, the shoe's going to drop <laughs> like really fast here, but you kind of have to have. I mean, it's funny. I feel like that sense of hope or joy. I mean, it almost does inherently exist in the past, you know. I mean, there's something. I mean, at least in my life, that it's a very rare to experience the presence of those things, which is not to say they don't exist. It's almost like they exist only as a kind of retrospective uh, item. And yeah, I mean, I think that that sensibility definitely informs this book. I mean, I'm I'm pleased that that if that happened for you, that's great. Yeah. Well, without revealing any spoilers, <laughs> I just wanted to I just wanted to say that in reading Rain Dragon. I, a lot of books that I think are really great, I think the hardest part to land is the ending. And I feel like you really did a great job with oh, the ending thank you. in a thank way you. that was surprising, satisfying, <laughs> and open-ended at the same time. You know, like you want that yeah, right. feeling that the story continues when the book yes, ends. Yes, right, right, right. And um, oh, I'm so glad. That's great. And yeah. yet it still has that feel of joy going <laughs> to sorrow, but it there's a sense of, of something. Yeah, right. Oh, that, good. I'm so glad. That's very... Uh, yeah. I mean, I did want to have a sense of like, basically, we're seeing one cycle of a person's path here, you know, that and, and it's kind of the book is constructed on the seasonal kind of basis. It kind of begins in the winter and it goes through the, su- the spring and the summer and comes back. And I think that sense of like going through the whole circle of a year and then, yeah, hopefully the next year is going to be sort of different, but also is going to be inherently the same. Like, I hope that that, that sense of, of, of cycles and continuation kind of happens somehow in there. Well, can you share a little bit with our, uh, I know you're involved with, you know, screenwriting and with short stories and novels and a variety of projects. Can you share anything about what you're working on now? Yeah, yeah, gladly. Um, there's a script I wrote with uh, Kelly Reichert who has uh, adapted well, we've done three movies together, uh, Old Joy and Wendy and Lucy and Meek's Cutoff. And um, so now there's a, a fourth that uh, the the script is basically done. And it's, um, I don't know, I won't say too much, but it's kind of a eco-terrorism kind of thing, kind of a caper movie. Um, 
hopefully, you know, yeah. It sounds like a big departure. It's kind of a departure, yeah. I think that the, I think our feeling was it was, it would be fun to do something a little more um, muscular. Um, so, you know, God willing, that will happen. You never know. Um, and then um, uh, I'm working on a script right now also with Todd Haynes. Um, we wrote the Mildred Pierce script together. And uh, he, uh, this one is kind of a, sort of a, um, it's an update of some films kind of like uh, Meet John Doe or uh, Face in the Crowd or even Network, if people are familiar with that, like kind of uh, every man who uh, becomes a spokesperson for some um, grassroots political movement and then gets mangled by the apparatus of the big media. Um, and so we're doing that updated for a kind of contemporary um, tea party viral video age um, and yeah we're I think you know the script is is coming along and again God willing that will sort of go yeah and then I've got some other fiction that I'm working on on the side too so sounds yeah. like a full year it's a it could be I mean it could be good you just never know what these things if they're really going to happen or not well, <laughs> again it's, it's like a positive thinking thing you know it's like exactly you, magical you, thinking you magically think and occasionally it happens you know <laughs> well it's great having you on between the covers today John thank you so much we've been talking today with John Raymond the author of Rain Dragon I'm David Naming your host and this has been between the covers <laughs>